Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Shifting Paradigms for Assessment and Management of Lower Risk Myodysplastic Syndromes, Genomics, Risk Stratification, and Novel Therapies, is brought to you by Access Medical Education and is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Here is Dr. Rami Kamrokji. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled Shifting Paradigms for Assessment and Management of Lower Risk Myodysplastic Syndromes, Genomics, Risk Certification, and Novel Therapies. I'm Rami Kumrukji. I'm Vice Chair of Malignant Hematology Department at Moffitt Cancer Center, joined by two of my dear friends, international experts in MDS, Dr. Jamil Shamo, Professor of Medicine and Pathology at Rush University Medical Center, and Dr. Michael Savona, Chief of Hematology at Vanderbilt University. Today, we're going to be focusing mostly on lower-risk MDS, really discussing the new advancement in understanding the molecular biology of the disease, the new risk models, and then discussing current available therapies and the novel therapies being introduced in the lower-risk MDS. So I'll start with a brief introduction to set the stage for my colleagues, and then hopefully we'll have a live discussion addressing many of the important clinical aspects of lower-risk MDS. As you well know, myelosplastic syndrome are neoplastic stem cell diseases. Those are a spectrum of disease that span from a lower grade to short-term life-threatening diseases. The hallmark of the disease is the presence of the dysplasia. In general, around 30% of the patients eventually progress to acute myeloid leukemia. However, unfortunately, majority of the patients die from complications related to the disease, namely the cytopenias. And myelodysplastic syndrome is probably the most common myeloid disease. The annual incidence in the USA is roughly estimated around 50,000 cases. Uh, the average age is in the 70s. And when you put this in you know, comparison to other diseases, the five-year survival with MDS is unfortunately as bad as some of the metastatic solid tumors, which is a point we don't think of on a regular basis. I don't think people think of the MDS or the lower-risk MDS as potentially a life-threatening disease. Now, to diagnose MDS, obviously, we need to establish presence of cytopenias, low blood count, and then one of certain criteria that are set for diagnosis, either presence of dysplasia, abnormal-looking cells, and it has to be 10% or more of any cell line, and that obviously depends on the pathologist or hematopathologist experience, or if there is increase in the myeloblasts in the range of 5 to 19%, and there are certain cytogenetic abnormalities that are defining for MDS, such as chromosome 5, 7, complex carrier type, etc. So diagnosis is usually really the first step and very crucial. There was a paper from our colleagues, MD Anderson, uh, looking at discrepancy between a tertiary referral center and MDS and common heme path reports. And in 15 to 20%, they changed the diagnosis. So really, the establishing the diagnosis is essential, and it needs the eyes of an experienced hematopathologist. Now, we learned in the last few years that MDS is really a genetic disease. We can identify abnormalities in almost 90% of the patients, both using conventional cytogenetics as well as next-generation sequencing to identify single somatic mutations. And there is obviously an important role for inflammation in MDS, and it's really the interplay between those genetic mishappenings and the inflammation are the uh, underlying biology for the clinical phenotypes and, and the various heterogeneous presentations we see for MDS. So for assessment for genetic abnormalities, obviously conventional cytogenetics or what we refer to as karyotype or G-banding is still standard of care and part of the assessment. Usually uh, around 30 to 40% will have an abnormality identified by that. One could use FISH where you have a certain probes to detect certain abnormalities most places will offer what we call a fish for MDS that will include deletion 5, 7, 8, 20, uh, etc. Uh, and the fish is a little bit more sensitive than the uh, cytogenetics, but it's only as, uh, answering a specific question. In our experience, when we looked at the fish 
it was complementing the cytogenetics only in less than 5% of the cases. So we currently use fish only when we don't have mycotic activity. The other aspect or the other way to evaluate the genetic abnormalities is really nowadays by integration of next generation sequencing, where we can identify somatic gene mutations. Uh, and that's becoming part of the routine assessment uh, as we will discuss today. And when we look at those abnormalities, they can be lumped into pathways. It turns out that MDS is really a disease of epigenetic dysregulation and splicing machinery uh, abnormalities. But there are other mutations as well can be seen. Tyrosine kinase pathway tends to be seen more in MDS-MPN. P53, uh, always a bad player in any subset. And I think one of the most important recently advancement is really our understanding of the spectrum of this disease. So, you know, now we talk about a spectrum from even before MDS. So we have what we call CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And those are patients that have normal blood counts. We identify a somatic mutation indicating that some of the hematopoiesis is clonal. Usually those mutations are at the variant allele frequency of 10 to 20%. If we sequence 100 people above age of 70 without abnormal blood counts, probably 10 to 20% will have that CHIP. Those patients with CHIP are at risk of developing MDS and other hematological malignancies. There is also what we call clonal cytopenia of unknown significance. So those patients have low blood count, but there is no dysplasia seen on the bone marrow. So the line is really very fine between a clonal cytopenia of unknown significance and lower risk MDS. Those patients typically have similar mutation profile to MDS and certain, based on the number of mutations, the variant allele frequency, the risk of progression to MDS is way higher than CHIP. And obviously we're trying to understand the implication of that. So for example, with CHIP, it's not just the risk of heme malignancies, uh, there is substantial risk of therapy-related myeloid neoplasms if those patients get treatment for solid tumors increased cardiovascular mortality, and other sequelae. And obviously in CCRS, that's becoming an opportunity for us to see in the future if we can intervene. Now, once we establish a diagnosis of MDS, typically hematopathologists will classify the disease. The classification used now is the WHO 2016 classification, but that's all changing uh, the WHO is coming with a 2022 classification integrating a lot of the molecular data, and there is the international classification consensus. And for the first time, we're going to probably have a little bit two different classifications. That will be interesting to see how that will evolve. But clearly, all those classifications are starting to recognize the importance of those genetic events in MDS and potential future treatment based on that. And also recognizing that probably when the myeloblasts are increased, the line between MDS and AML is also fine. So with that, I'd like to start the discussion uh, around those things. And I would probably ask Dr. Shamo to start with walking us through how do you work up patients for MDS and you know how do you integrate all the uh, testing before starting treatment? Uh, thank you, Rami. And that was a beautiful uh, uh, recap of what we know now about the MDS and sort of the most recent uh, developments in the field. I like to point out that um, a diagnosis can be rather difficult because of the heterogeneity and because of the fact that dysplasia is essentially a morphological diagnosis that can be seen in many other situations other than just MDS. So Sometimes you find yourself trying to rule out other conditions like uh, viral infections, autoimmunity. Um, and so that goes into the minimal diagnostic criteria that we need to meet in order to uh, make the diagnosis of MDS. But for the first time, you see the uh, implementation of some of the molecular discoveries, if you will, of uh, the recent science that had uh, percolated through the uh, diagnostic criteria of MDS. So for example, uh, the recent introduction of the ability to make a diagnosis of ring sideroblasts, if you are able to demonstrate the presence of at least 5% of ring sideroblasts together with the presence of SF3B1 mutation. But of course, if you don't do next generation sequencing, looking for SF3B1 mutation and your pathologist does not look 
for uh, or do an iron stain looking for ring sideroblast, that diagnosis could be entirely missed uh, if you don't have the, according to the older definition, dysplasia defined as more than 15% ring sideroblast. So that's one example. So therefore, it's very important to familiarize ourselves with the most recent diagnostic criteria. Furthermore, there's some effort, as you have alluded to, to make that diagnosis, even if you don't have ring sideroblast uh, and only have somehow confirmation of the presence of SF3B1, because if you have that clone, it's as if you are demonstrating the presence of this clonal population that in time will only manifest with ring sideroblast and the ultimate evolution to a clonal disorder and uh, the formation of dysplasia and hence MDS. So it'll be really interesting how will that evolve uh, in the new diagnostic criteria or WHO criteria and uh, how will the adoption uh, ultimately uh, culminate, if you will. So that's one piece about the diagnosis. And then, and then I think the heterogeneity relative to the molecular landscape is tremendous. I think it's not just the type of the mutation is also the variant allele frequency that we need to pay attention to and the company with which it keeps. So that also is work in progress. I think that we are learning more about the therapeutic efficacy of certain agents as it relates to uh, those mutations. And I think most fascinatingly, if you will, what happens when you have clonal hematopoiesis in terms of cardiac events and thrombotic events, I think that's the way of the future for us to understand, uh, is there actually an association between clonal hematopoiesis, inflammation, and consequences of this, not just for the bone marrow, but for every other organ system, but that's obviously is yet to come. Thank you. So, Michael, uh, maybe you can walk us through the testing for, you know, uh, somatic mutations. What are the best practices now? What do the national guidelines recommend? And how do you do that in your practice as well? Yeah, sure. Gladly. I think, you know, everything that's been said thus far is is very helpful in trying to, you know, articulating how we make this diagnosis and, and showing how next generation sequencing is really critical. That MDS is a bone marrow failure syndrome that arises from clonal abnormalities, most commonly single nucleotide variants that you know, unlike a lot of cancers that um, we know have, you know, hundreds of different genes that are mutated and, and very low frequency. And in MDS, you're really talking about 35 to 55 genes that occupy 95 to 99% of the incidence. So it's fairly concise to have a panel which envelops most of the genes that are mutated in MDS. Now, it was the Wild West with next-gen sequencing, but I think that just like most pathologic testing, beyond CLIA approval and validation of a test, there's more acceptance now of certain vendors and academic groups doing tests that include upgrades of new hotspot mutation areas as we learn more. It's just common sense, right? If you, in 2015, you know, you, you saw a mutation for the first time because only a couple hundred patients or a few thousand patients had ever been genotyped. But, you know, now hundreds of thousands of patients have been genotyped so what was once a variant of undetermined significance, maybe part of the just a rare variant in the normal population, we now know with a, a little bit more certainty, you know, this is actually associated with disease. And that's a work in progress. It's iterative. Uh, but we're dealing with this small group of mutated genes where we have more and more information about the recurrent mutations. And as Jamil said, I mean, um, it, the mutations that you see matter both in MDS proper and in precursor states. And I'd have to say, and I'm sure we'll talk more about both of these things, but I have to say the two biggest innovations or uh, developments in our field from my perspective in, uh, in the last several years is one, the realization that a clonal abnormality occurs, the immune milieu in the marrow changes, and subsequent mutations lead to MDS. So the idea of precursor states and then the other idea is that, you know, especially young people have, you know, they're more commonly uh, than we think have constitutional abnormalities that set them up for developing MDS. Most commonly are things like DDX41 or RUNX1 mutations 
that um, are actually not as uncommon as we once thought in, in the germline that really predispose people to developing mild dysplastic syndrome and, and leukemia. But we'll talk more about the latter. With respect to the former, I think that it's in the precursor states, what we've learned through the Italian group and many others is that not all mutations are created equal. You know, it matters which gene the mutation's in. It matters how many mutations there are. It matters how many of the cells have the mutation in the variant allele frequency, the combination, the interplay between those genes. And we're still iteratively improving this understanding. The latest thing is probably an energetic variation where one mutation in a gene is important and one mutation is not, which makes total sense if you imagine how different genes function and their, their gene products function if you have a mutation that's in an important binding region versus a mutation that's way downstream. For example, they may have great difference of importance on the impact to the disease. I think that one of the key questions that Rami was asking about, you know, what's the nut and bolts of, of doing next-gen sequencing, I think we're going to see more insistence from the community and ultimately regulation around what are the standard common genes and common hotspots that are tested? Because it is, while it's getting, I think, more, less custom and more centralized, I do think there's still quite a bit of, of variability from different vendors. And that's why it's really important to kind of understand, you know, the, the genes that are mutated in this disease and use a trusted vendor that, you know, uh, that you have a relationship with. And sometimes these things are driven by payers and, and insurers and makes it complicated. So it adds a new complication to taking care of these these patients for sure. I agree. I think, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, next generation sequencing should be part of standard care nowadays. As you alluded, it's important to know where it's done, uh, to be always cautious on interpreting the results because, you know, it needs some expertise. Uh, but the current national guidelines do recommend integrating it at least at time of diagnosis Although it's not part of the diagnostic criteria, it's coming soon. It establishes clonal hematopoiesis, as you mentioned, definitely has prognostic value, as we will talk about more and more, and therapeutic value. And in, in our institution, sometimes also when disease changes or there is a treatment failure and we are moving to the next treatment, we do reconsider repeating those because every now and then we'll be able to identify targets. So there is no doubt that integration is happening uh, but your points are very well taken about, you know, knowing the lab that you are using, uh, be cautious in interpreting them. As Jamil even mentioned probably before, it's not just the mutation, what's the variant allele frequency. So it still needs some expertise in interpreting those. You had asked me, you know, what in my practice, and I think our practice is very similar to yours. Everyone who comes with a new diagnosis of MDS needs next-gen sequencing. Um, everybody who um, has a change, uh, you know, a, a real change in the character of the disease. Uh, I, I repeat genetic testing. Uh, and, you know, I often use genetic testing, although this is outside the recommendations in my practice, uh, you know, the recommendations haven't caught up with this kind of thing quite yet. But in my practice, I actually use genetic testing at times where I'm making difficult decisions, when to send someone a stem cell transplant. Do they have genetic evolution of the disease? That might be just enough to make make me want to make that recommendation where I wouldn't otherwise. Absolutely. Uh, maybe I'd like to focus a little bit also about a unique subset as we are discussing, you know, uh, genetic mishappenings, uh, talking a little bit about MDS with ring sideroblast. Obviously, this is an entity we knew about, you know, many years ago, but now we understand the strong genotype-phenotype association. MDS with ring sideroblast is not the most common, maybe 10, 15% of the cases, but it's one of the most prevalent because those patients have relatively better overall survival, but always have this unmet need of anemia. Uh, Jamil, can you walk us a little bit about what are MDS ring sideroblasts, how we diagnose that, uh, the unique association with SF3B1, and how we are moving even to the molecular classification of this entity? Uh, MDS with ring sideroblasts, is a special type of MDS whereby the bone marrow erythroblasts are characterized by the presence of small blue granules that represent mitochondrial ferritin and can be visualized on a pearl stain. Essentially, most of those cases are characterized by the presence of a splicosomal mutation known as SF3B1. 
course, there are many other spisosomal mutations, but the most prevalent, perhaps 80 some percent, is that involving SF3B1. And the majority of that work goes back to 2011 when Yoshida actually performed, the initial work was on some 29 patients where they did whole exome sequencing, which doesn't necessarily pick up the gene uh, uh, rearrangements, but looks at uh, protein normalities. And then they found spisosomal mutations in a decent number. And then they went ahead and did this work in a much larger patient population, confirming the initial finding and noting that, uh, again, this was... Um, a tremendous finding that led to further understanding that those were not only specific to MDS, certain MDS subtypes, uh, but that they were mutually exclusive uh, and that they were related to the disease phenotype. So for example, later on, we found out that knocking uh, SF3B1 mutations in mice does produce the MDS phenotype. And so I guess the, the next question was, well, what was that exactly related to? And there's still some speculation as to why does this mutation that relates to alteration in splicing the pre-messenger RNA leads to inability to utilize the iron that gets stuck in, uh, in the mitochondria in the form of mitochondrial ferritin. It's not exactly clear, but there's some suggestion that perhaps there may be some downregulation of some gene that has also been implicated in hereditary sideroblastic anemia. So there's some very fascinating basic science that's going on in that area. But the bottom line, this is something that we can certainly look for uh, by next generation sequencing. And it does have some prognostic implications in that patients who have SF3B1 seem to have a very good prognosis. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think obviously it's always a fascinating entity or subtype of MDS. I always tell my fellows to remember that not every ring sideroblast is MDS. As you alluded, there is hereditary forms. Copper deficiency, if there is no somatic mutations, always look for copper deficiency with ring sideroblasts. Uh, it can be seen in other situations as well. And as you mentioned, there is strong association with the SF3B1. Uh, it's subtype characterized by this ineffective hematopoiesis. Again, relatively favorable outcome, but this transfusion-dependent anemia over time. But I think that's all shifting more to a molecular-based classification. I think uh, we uh, had a paper earlier talking about SF3B1 subtype proposal that's probably going to be adopted in the 222 classification by the WHO. Michael, can you walk us a little bit through that SF3B1 proposal as an entity and the details of that? I agree with both of you that SF3B1 is a fascinating entity. Because we now have therapy that we feel that we can target some of these SF3B1 mutated MDS cases, it's important to identify it because it is in the presence of ring sideroblast indicative of a disease. There is a movement to reclassify SF3V1 specific mutant cases with a lower amount of ring sideroblast. And there are some who believe in our community that SF3V1 mutant disease is sufficient for the diagnosis of MDS. I think SF3V1 is, is fascinating mutation in that it, it's actually associated with good risk in MDS. There are about 10 to 15% of patients with SF3V1 who actually have a pretty poor risk disease and are co-mutated with TP53. But for the most part, SF3V1 mutation is associated with very good risk. But an interesting molecular epidemiology finding is in the last several years, we've discovered that in pre-MDS precursor states, CHIP and CCUS, that SF3 mutations are much more likely to lead to disease. So remember, that CCUS is very common. There's probably hundreds of thousands of patients with CCUS, but many of those patients never develop MDS at all. And the ones that do seem to be enriched for SF3V1, which turns out to be the less risky mutation when you actually have MDS. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, obviously we're learning a lot about this. The proposal for this SF3B1 as unique entity is probably going to be adopted. In the criteria set, obviously, it was absence of complex karyotype, no increased blasts, certain commutations such as RUNX1, EZH2, rarely P53, will not have the same good prognostic value. 
So I think it's very obvious like that we spend a lot of time in establishing the diagnosis, getting the molecular testing. I think, you know, although the classification is important and in cases like deletion 5Q and SF3B1, we have targeted therapy. But I think the, the crucial step is really the risk stratification. We've historically used the IPSS revised version most recently to risk stratify patients. And the goal at the end is really having patients into two groups, either a lower risk where we manage stepwise elevating cytopenias or a higher risk that we are entertaining allogeneic stem cell transplant or trying to intervene to improve the survival. So I think where we are moving now is definitely integrating molecular. And as we already briefly mentioned, there is now a new model, IPSSM, the Molecular International Prognostic Scoring System, that was presented at the American Society of Hematology and just published in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence Journal. Jamil, can you tell us a little bit more about this IPSSM? How did it differ from the revised IPSS? Absolutely. So the IPSS molecular was basically an endeavor to combine clinical data together with molecular data to come up with a scoring system that encompasses all of the above to essentially provide a better estimation of overall survival and leukemic evolution and to help us as practitioners who take care of MBS to overcome some of the heterogeneity and understand where to place those mutations that we all know figure into the prognosis with this. And granted, this is a very complex disease and a complex endeavor to begin with. Now, fortunately, there is a calculator (laughs) that we can use. In fact, I just received in my email link to a molecular calculator to this particular scoring system. So hopefully it'll be somewhat easier to do. So how they did this is that they had a discovery cohort, some very large number in thousands, and then a validation cohort. So they adjusted for certain variables, and then they incorporated various genes, and then they concocted a six. So ultimately, they came up with a score, and they have six groups instead of the five that we have with the IPSS. And and in their hands, it appears that this is better than the IPSS, and it has somewhat of a more uh, discerning capabilities. To me, when I look at it, if you looked at the very low, low and the intermediate reclassification of the IPSSR, you can see like a technicolor, right, of the reclassification of what you found in the IPSS. If you were to apply the IPSSM, uh, telling you that maybe you are up risking uh, some of those patients that were considered intermediate and now they are either high or very high, which you would like to know that were to be the case because you probably would consider them for transplantation. And and like I said, this was already validated in a discovery in a validation cohort. So it'll be really interesting if this is going to be something that the practitioners will utilize. I, I certainly will use it in concordance with the IPSSR to get the handle on this. And I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about this. I mean, certainly we need a tool to put this forth to utilize it in clinical practice? Well, I think that risk stratification is something Rami spent a career working on, and I'm sure he's got thoughts on how important this is, but it's a work in progress, right? I think as wonderful as IPSSM is, in some ways, we're learning that it's already outdated. So it's binary. You know, you have a mutation or you don't, but we know it matters how much of the mutation you have and the co-mutational status, and it maybe even matter intragenically. But that's okay because the C-index, the accuracy of prediction with the IPSSM exceeds what we already have. And if you go to mdsriskmodel.com, you can actually put in test cases in the model. And what you'll find is just as Jamil said, patients who are intermediate risk on IPSS are recategorized not infrequently to a, a different risk category with, with IPSM based solely on the presence of single nucleotide variants. And this is important because it edifies why we do next-gen sequencing, and it shows how important those next-gen sequencing results will be because it is the difference between someone going to transplant or not going to transplant. 
I found already in my clinical practice, uh, you know, since I was involved in the work, I was beta testing this risk model for, for quite some time now. And I found it, it really changed how you look at cases. I took all the lower risk cases and looked at their genetic sequencing and saw how that changed their risk score on IPSSM and really opened my mind to think perhaps this might be a patient I would consider transplant earlier, given the risk associated with those mutations. So I really do think it's going to be adapted. And I think it's always a work in progress. Over time, it becomes a bioinformatic problem, right? It's not just a 3,000 patients in a model testing the binary presence of gene or not gene, but is there a a mutation allele burden or a, a mutation location within the gene itself that is more important than another mutation in the same gene? That's clearly the case. But, you know, it's going to take years before we figure out exactly how to further improve upon this. So this is really an accomplishment by the IWGPM and and certainly uh, helps us do a better job of stratifying patients who come through the door. Absolutely. I I agree with both of you. And I think the the, the main point is, as uh, Michael alluded, that is it perfect? Probably not. And there's going to be future versions, but it definitely refines the revised IPSS. I think the risk models are always dependent also on our therapeutics and how effective. Just to give an idea for the audience, the IPSSM retains all the clinical variables from the IPSSR, except of the neutropenia, and then adds data from 17 genetic variables and then one genetic variable from other 15 genes. So it's really pretty comprehensive for the abnormalities. And it's based on leukemia-free survival. We learned that not the most common abnormalities, but things like a FLT3 mutation or another mutation they described in the MLL gene as a partial tandem duplication in 2% of the patients are very important and have strong association with outcome. And obviously, as we've known for a while now, the presence of a biallelic or multi-hit TP53 is one of the most important prognostic factors. On the other hand, as we were discussing SF3B1, we learned that you know SF3B1 commutations can affect the outcome. So again, things like RONX1, EZH2, and other mutations will not have the same favorable as other commutations with SF3B1. And in, very interestingly, the coexistence of the deletion 5Q with SF3B1 as well was not associated with good outcome. Again, as alluded, I think it's a web-based calculator. It actually accounts even if some of the variants are missing. I think we're going to be seeing more and more use for it, but I totally agree with Michael. I think it's not the last step. It's just a step forward in our risk assessment. So Rami, I I think that, you know, one of the point you made about the uh, MLL and the FOOT3 ITD and the TP53, I'd just like to comment on that briefly. So um, specifically the FLT3 and the MLL, the, these are, are really rare in MDS, and they usually represent uh, MDS and transformation. And the fact that these came across as the single biggest risk mutations that we saw is in itself a positive control, right? So we had positive controls in, in, that showed us kind of what we already believed with TP53 bioallelics, with MLL, with FLT3, and with this SF3B1 with respect to good risk. And then we got the further stratification of those, of those combinatorial mutations with SF3-1, which I think will be really helpful in the future. Absolutely. So I think, you know, we should probably move to talking about some of the treatments. So obviously, we will focus today in the, on the lower risk MDS. And as you saw, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, making sure we have the right diagnosis and risk stratification. And then we would put these patients in this bucket of what we call lower risk. Uh, This is a particular area that I've been interested in in the recent years, looking at the outcome for those patients. And what we found that maybe 30% of those patients eventually will progress. Some of the mutations that even Michael just alluded are probably in transition Uh, things like IDH1, IDH2, but majority of those patients actually stay in that lower risk state. However, unfortunately, more than half of them probably die from complications of the cytopenia. And when we look at national registries, we see that even patients with moderate anemia are not treated in in the lower risk. And obviously, in, in most of the lower risk, the main issue we are treating anemia, we could come back and talk a little bit more about, you know, isolated neutropenia or thrombocytopenia, those are less often in the lower risk. 
But in most of the cases, we are treating anemia. So our first treatment had been always the erythroid-stimulating agents. So Jamil, talk us a little bit through how do you decide that this patient is good candidate? When do you start? How long do you keep it? And what's really an ESA failure? Absolutely. So I think that patients who have MDS generally will present, most patients will present with anemia to begin with. And those who may not be transfusion dependent will ultimately require transfusion only a matter of time. I think it is essential that whenever a diagnosis is made for us to obtain baseline serum EPO level, that's extremely important. And this should be done before a transfusion has taken place. I find that to be sometimes a missing piece, and, and it's kind of difficult to interpret the, the level after transfusion because it's hard to interpret. So that needs to be done prior to transfusion. So why? Well, because EPO level is extremely helpful in understanding what the, the likelihood of a response may be. So there's data from the Nordic group that they, many years back, suggesting that any level below 500 will portend for a response to, in that analysis from multiple, from three studies, if I remember, uh, people who have um, a level below 100 had the best response, which is on the order of 75%. Between 100 to 500 is perhaps 23, and then uh, above 500 is negligible. So more data recently suggests that perhaps we should adopt below 200 because that seems to be a much more reasonable cutoff. So I don't know. We don't have any data between 200 and 500, but the bottom line, the lower the level, the higher the response rate. And be it as it may, you could give the patient a trial between 8 to 12 weeks of either formulation of ESAs plus minus GCSF. And there used to be data adding nupogen or granulocyte assimilating factor to patients having sideroblasts at least according to NICE uh, data from the UK. Uh, and again, you could add perhaps four weeks to that, but in eight to 12 weeks, you'll be able to identify whether your patient is a responder or not. And the higher the dose of the ESAs, the better the response. And it has been shown with multiple meta-analyses of various trials, right? So that we don't have to belabor. But the point is that if the patient continues to be transfusion dependent, despite those escalation, despite giving it a, a fair shake, or if they have a baseline EPO level over 500, let's say, then I think we need to think about an alternative. Absolutely, yeah. So I think, you know, if you look at the data, probably responses are seen in the range of 40 to 50%. Failure is inevitable of the ESAs. And I think, you know, sometimes we see a lot of unnecessary continuation or like somebody getting blood transfusions every two weeks, but they are still on ESA and with the thinking that that's minimizing transfusions. I think that's a clear ESA failure. I struggle sometimes with somebody's hemoglobin staying stable, not going up. But I think, you know, as you mentioned, once you tried eight to 12 weeks, and if there is really no clear response, one should move to the next step. So if patients have deletion 5Q, Lenalidomide had been our standard of care for many years for patients that are transfusion dependent. I think there had been recent interesting data with the earlier use, uh, the, our colleagues from Spain with the Central Rev study. Uh, Jamil, can you tell us a little bit more about the earlier use of LEN and deletion 5Q? Absolutely. And I actually think that that's a very Interesting. I think that the Centra Rev trial is actually practically designed because a lot of my patients who have MDS with Del 5 would be denied uh, lenalidomide until they are transfusion dependent. And I, I honestly don't think that that is a reasonable assumption, if you will, because someone who may have a hemoglobin of 9.5 could definitely benefit from disease, a disease-modifying agent, if you will, and perhaps improvement of that hemoglobin. So this trial is a phase three, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, multi-center study taking patients who have a diagnosis of low and int one disease. They're not necessarily transfusion dependent. Their hemoglobin could be below 12 grams and have a diagnosis of Del5Q and exploring the notion of earlier versus late treatment. Uh, so randomizing patients to five milligrams daily 
versus placebo, and then following those patients for about two years, and then they would be followed for another two years. And the primary endpoint in this situation is time to transfusion dependency. How long does it take those patients to ultimately develop transfusion dependence? And of course, there are many other secondary time points included in that cytogenetic response. And for patients who may have TP53 from the get-go, what happens to this leukemia evolution, et cetera. So what's interesting is to see that the median hemoglobin at inclusion for those patients vary anywhere from 7 to 11.7 grams. So the median was about 9.8, right? So we're not talking about people who have very high hemoglobin. So some were definitely anemic at the time of inclusion. And what was interesting is to see that the time to transfusion dependence was triple that in people who were treated versus those, those who weren't. So it's sort of an interesting concept in that if you treated patients earlier, you will delay their transfusion dependency. So it's something that might resonate hugely with patients, right? You don't want to get to the point where you are sitting in the infusion suite receiving blood over two and three hours or what have you, and with significant impact on somebody's quality of life. And so uh, that's my take on it. I think if I'm a patient, I would be in favor of getting treated so that I don't end up with this, especially knowing that most patients will end up with that outcome that is transfusion. And that was statistically significant. So I think the more interesting, but I should say the most uh, biologically relevant piece to this is in what happens to leukemic evolution, what happens to subclones that come with this, or if someone has TP53, what is the impact of earlier treatment on that and that we don't have yet? So more to come. Absolutely. I think obviously lenidomide is very active in Del5Q. It was really interesting to see how a lower dose only for two years produced that benefit challenging, you know, our primary endpoints in, in lower risk MDS of always being the transfusion independency, but rather as we get more and more active therapies to go for time to transfusion or free transfusion duration. So if patients got ESA, Del5Q gets lenalidomide. If patients have MDS with ring sideroblasts, nowadays we have a treatment up, uh, approved lispatercept this is the first drug approved in 10 years uh, in MDS. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about Luspatercept, its mechanism of action, summarizing a little bit also the clinical data and your personal experience using it? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I think these lower risk MDS has gotten confusing. It used to be we had EPO and uh, we had a couple of different ESAs to offer, and then we had lenalidomide, and lenalidomide was largely in the Del5Qs. And, you know, and now we have Luspetercept and a variety of new TGF-beta ligand traps that are kind of coming down the pike as potential treatments for low-risk MDS. Luspetercept and Sotatercept were co-developed, and Luspetercept was the one that was moved forward in phase three study and ultimately approved. And this drug is not exactly a TGF-beta ligand trap, but acts like one. It, it is a fusion protein, a uh, IgG1 and FC recombinant fusion protein of activin R to be an IgG1 that traps the uh, TGF-beta superfamily ligand, which is the SMAD23 signaling, and ultimately is it blocks the negative regulator of late-stage erythropoiesis. So by this double negative blocking the inhibitor of late-stage erythropoiesis, you get later erythroid differentiation and production of red cells. It's important to know that Luspatercept was first tested in a variety of low-risk intermediate risk MDS patients and had a reduction in, in transfusions and transfusion independence across the board. In the phase three study, the, the, this was the patients with ring sideroblasts were the ones studied. So the phase three medalist trial basically was a two-to-one study that randomized patients two-to-one to placebo or uh, luspetercept infusion every 21 days. And it was for patients with ring sideroblasts or with at least 5% ring sideroblasts and SF31 or 15% ring sideroblasts. And this was a positive study across the board, revealing an improvement in transfusion independence, uh, revealing a, a, a hematologic improvement of bump in hemoglobin in patients who did respond. And it's, for the most part, really well tolerated. I, you know, about 40% of the patients that were on the study developed pretty profound fatigue. 
And most of that went away if they were able to stay on the, the treatment. And that's pretty similar to the experience I've had in the clinic. I have had patients who've had so much fatigue, they refuse to stay on the drug. But if I can get them through a cycle or two, I usually don't see too much fatigue. It's a little strange. There was reports of a neuropathy and some pleural effusions and some diarrhea in the clinical trial that were higher than what we expect in the placebo side. I haven't seen a lot of that myself, but I've seen a little of it. But, you know, the, the, the drug definitely adds, you know, to our arsenal. Now, the question is, when can you use Uspetercept beyond ring blast? We use it in MDS with ring blast. We use it in overlap, MDS, MPN with ring blast and thrombocytosis. But, you know, off-label should we be using it in lower-risk MDS? And that's uh, kind of being explored now in the command trial, which will look at all other types of low-risk MDS that might benefit. And I think what we're going to find is that there's a place for a drug, this drug and drugs like it in lower risk MDS. And the new challenge will be sequencing them properly with other things we have available like ESAs and lenalidomide. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously I think, you know, this patercept is currently approved for patients with ring sideroblast. Uh, in the study, the transfusion burden was the most important predictor of response, which we see also in real life. I think the key clinical message is, is this is an injection every three weeks. One need to escalate the dose, especially among patients that are heavily transfusion dependent. That was divided, this, you know, uh, uh, using six units every eight weeks uh, and giving the drug some time to assess if there's, uh, there is a response. So at the past ASCO and the EHA meeting, uh, we heard also updates on uh, Luspatercept with the longer-term use, where, you know, almost 40% plus of the patients achieve the endpoint. And when you look at the transfusion independency, the, the duration can exceed a year with the Luspatercept use. There were cases where patients needed blood transfusion occasionally, but with the adjustment of the dose, the uh, cumulative you know, median duration is around 80 weeks with using this patterset. So this is reflective of the, you know, longer term data. I think the key messages, again, is the appropriate identification of patients, maybe introducing the treatment earlier, because again, the most predictive of response is the magnitude of transfusion or the transfusion burden, which could reflect the biology, but also an opportunity to intervene earlier and the maximization of the dose. Many of the patients that are transfusion dependent, especially if it's heavy transfusion dependency, will need to go to the 1.75 milligram per kilogram dose, which is the highest dose. And that was also you know, published by Dr. Ruby Platzpecker, looking at that majority of the patients needed the increase in the dosing if they were heavily transfusion dependent. As you mentioned, fatigue is a phenomenon we see in the first couple of months, some GI toxicity, edema, but all over you know, less than 5% of the patients discontinue. And as you alluded also, the research side is extending beyond the MDS ring sideroblast. The command study is looking at comparing it to ESA upfront. There are studies also going to be looking at combinations with lenalidomide, with ESA, and so forth. So we covered upfront ESA, deletion 5Q get lenalidomide, MDS with ring sideroblast now preferentially get luspatercept. Then you get to the Rest garden variety of the lower risk, non-del5, non-ring sideroblast. And I think we have, you know, a few options there. Jamil, can you tell us about lenalidomide use in non-del5Q in that group? Yes. So as I'm sure everyone knows that this has already been explored with the MDS003 and uh, the response to lenalidomide in the 002 study, which is what evaluated the same drug in the non-DEL5 population, was more modest. So one out of uh, four patients attained transfusion uh, independence. And so it is possible uh, to achieve up to perhaps 40% some type of erythroid response. But it was also the, there was an ECOG study at Dr. List, I believe, reported on that. There was a European trial that combined EPO together with lenalidomide in the non-DEL5 and demonstrated that the combination actually performs better than lenalidomide alone. And so I think it's certainly reasonable to consider the combination in someone who may have uh, preserved 
hematological parameters other than the hemoglobin, because clearly that's why you are utilizing it to improve the anemia. So in someone who may have preserved platelet count, neutrophil count, I feel comfortable using the combination to achieve a potential uh, hematological improvement or transfusion independence. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so uh, again, I think it's reasonable to use it in patients that are purely anemic, if patients have concomitant thrombocytopenia or neutropenia, even if they are not severe, probably that group is not going to respond to lenalidomide in the non-DEL5 Q setting particularly. Now, when we see patients having some concomitant thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, options become limited. Again, not necessarily that those are severe or needing intervention, but their presence could affect our choice of therapy. I always like to think of immunosuppressive therapy in younger patients. This is, in my opinion, always underutilized option. It's one of the few that can get your trilineage responses. If somebody is young, responses can exceed 40 or 50%. So in our patients less than 60, particularly if they have you know, pancytopenias, we tend to think of ATG. But in reality, for the majority of the rest of the patients, if they have concomitant thrombocytopenia or neutropenia, our mainstay or after failure of the other therapies we discussed still remain using hypomethylating agents, which is something you know, available in the USA, interestingly, not out of the USA. So, Michael, you know, maybe you can walk us a little bit through use of hypomethylating agents, also telling us a little bit more about the oral formulations. You've been on the front end the developing those presented data on oral hypomethylating agents. So walk us through hypomethylating agents using lower-risk MDS. Sure. Well, DNA methyltransferase inhibitors or hypomethylating agents are the really the backbone of therapy for MDS since 2001, the AZA001 study, um, which led to the approval of azacitidine in patients with MDS and, and CMML. It's clear that patients need disease modification when they have increased blasts. Uh, it's always trickier in lower risk disease. And the way I like to think about this, um, EPO and Lucepetercept, we're not sure yet, but we think Lucepetercept and EPO are, are both non-disease modifying. It doesn't, uh, i.e. it doesn't change the trajectory of, of the uh, clonal disease. It may just, it's a more of a, a, a symptom control phenotype improvement. That remains to be determined yet on Lucepetercept, but we think that's the case. Linolinamide has some disease modifying activity. But, you know, in patients who have non-DEL5Q disease, if, you know, you have, if you have bilineage cytopenias that are getting the patient in a trouble, that can be still be low risk by IPSSR or by IPSSM if they don't have a lot of mutations on their NGS. And they may be good candidates for treatment with the DNMTI. And, and in COV or Aztec 727 or DEC-C, it has a few names, is the combination of, of decitabine at the standard dose in an oral form given together with sedazuridine, which is a cytidinamidase inhibitor, which prohibits the drug from being metabolized on first pass in the gut and the liver, leading to pharmacokinetic equivalence to you know, the, the parenteral dose of decitabine. This is only available for decitabine right now in the United States and Canada and soon Europe, but it will, it's being tested the same ideas being tested with oral azacitidine plus adaziuridine, and that's currently in, in phase one study. The use of, a, of an oral inhibitor opens up the door to easier combination and, you know, at, you know, lower doses, metronomic dosing of low-risk MDS, which is certainly being explored for a long time. Uh, we know there's a dose-dependent effect on hypomethylation with DNMTIs, and the idea that you could have a low-risk disease and maybe uh, cause less cytotoxicity and less disease-associated cytopenias, but may get more uh, hypomethylation and reversal of genetic pathology and improvement in counts is something that people are, are wanting to explore. The ascertained study in which we studied patients who were intermediate one, uh, intermediate two, and high risk with the Aztec 727 DEC-C combination included quite a few patients with intermediate one disease and a very small number of lower-risk patients as the idea was to follow the label for the cytobine for inclusion criteria. But, you know, this drug and, and any of the DNA methyltransferase inhibitors, as I said, could be used when patients get into trouble with 
with more than just anemia, but anemia and thrombocytopenia, anemia and neutropenia, and of course, neutropenia risk is a function of how deep the neutropenia is, and or don't respond to growth factors. I typically don't use a lot of growth factors in patients who have any kind of proliferative component to their disease because there is a theoretic risk there uh, of transformation, but patients who have no proliferative or very low proliferative risk, single mutated SF3 one mutants, you know, less than 5% blast, who develop a subsequent neutropenia, there might be an opportunity to get a benefit out of growth factors. But for the others, I like the idea of being able to use DNA methyltransferase inhibitors. And I think an important message for practitioners is to understand that the label for decitabine and DEC-C is five days, the 20 milligrams per meter squared or the oral equivalent with cedazuridine, or the azacitidine over seven days, 75 milligrams per meter squared. And we don't have an oral equivalent yet for the parenteral azacitidine, but either of these, the parenteral or the oral of these drugs can be dosed down. And we often uh, dose down patients from five days of Aztec 727 or DEC-C to four days or to even three days and space out their treatment by weeks. There aren't a lot of patients, I think, that remain on a standard five days of treatment every month, every 28 days for a long period of time. Most people do need dose adjustments. And while patients with higher blasts, you want to make sure that you're appropriately treating the patient to disease reduced prior to transplant. Lower risk patients, we need to be even more sensitive and careful that we don't put them at higher risk of neutropenic fever and an earlier death by over-treating and causing deeper cytopenias. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And obviously, you've been developing those and spending a lot of time thinking about it. I think the appeal of the oral hypomethylating agents is the ease for the patients. There are some issues sometimes with the co-payment in real life, but I think we are testing those in attenuated dosing in, in lower risk. It still requires the monitoring at the beginning, but it's definitely a, a step forward. And hopefully we'll have more and more of like almost a total oral therapy for our MDS patients. You alluded to the neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. As we talked at the beginning, there is a really small subset of lower risk MDS patients that will have either isolated neutropenia or isolated thrombocytopenia. In our practice also, we share your concerns about, you know, liberal use of GCSF. There have been no studies to actually show survival advantage. So if patients have isolated neutropenia without recurrent infections, we actually observe. Even with hypomethylating agents, the responses are probably in the range of 20 to 25%. You know, there had been some interest recently looking like IDH inhibitors that seems to be enriched in patients with neutropenia. Similar with thrombocytopenia, hypomethylating agents are probably the only active agents. Younger patients can get ATG cyclosporin. There is some data on L-thrombobag single agent use or romiplostim in patients with isolated thrombocytopenias with, you know, long follow-up and, and reasonable responses. But I think you also, we are also having few newer and exciting drugs being tested in, in lower-risk MDS. Uh, there are ongoing clinical trials uh, advanced. Uh, maybe I'll ask Jamil to tell us a little bit about Mtiristat, Roxadistat, IDH inhibitors in, in lower-risk MDS. It's really interesting. Suddenly we have this plethora of uh, novel agents that you can explore. And, and the data look really uh, interesting. Like for a middle step, for example, they're looking at the exact same population that would not be responders to ESAs, for example, either have failed it or have an EPO level above 500. And the transition independence rate of about 40% is rather remarkable. So, but we have, we have to await for the phase three clinical trial data. So, and as I'm sure, Ram, you know, it's been explored also in MPNs and so not just in MDS. So safety and additional data would be really needed. And then Roxatostat, which is a hypoxia-inducible factor inhibitor, which basically promotes the production of erythropoietin, which is already an agent approved in China, actually, for the treatment of renal failure, which is what we use here, not necessarily Roxatostat, but uh, ESAs in people who have kidney failure is another agent that's being explored for the treatment of anemia in MDS, and that's very interesting. So, and then you already mentioned L-thrombopag, that's 
um, another agent that uh, could be utilized. So all of a sudden we have various novel agents that could be used and we, we uh, are awaiting the results of many other phase three trials that will hopefully give us more agents to use in this sort of heterogeneous and difficult to treat patient population. And I think that heterogeneity speaks to some of the difficulty with drug development in MDS. You know, we've had a lot of very promising phase one and phase two data with novel agents, the uh, APR246, pevanidostat, and, and, you know, you go to phase three study and, and these things don't seem to pan out. And I tend to believe that this is likely a function of patient selection that we're missing, and it probably is a subset of MDS patients. As both of you have illustrated so well today, this is a, a very heterogeneous disease. And the idea that you can develop one drug to treat all patients with disease is a little bit naive. And banking on the past experience we've had with azonucleosides, where 60% of patients get you know some response of some kind and a quarter of them get complete response. Well, that's better than nothing across the board, but we really have to do better. I think that you mentioned IDH inhibitors, Rami, and I mean, I think IDH inhibitors uh, are are definitely, if you have an IDH mutation MDS, by all means, together with DNMTIs are, 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 is good combination. They're just so rare in MDS. And then, you know, when you see them, they're almost always a function of, almost present as a function of pre-leukemic state because they're proliferative genes. So I, I find that IDH inhibitors are practically just not so useful in MDS because you just don't have a lot of those patients before they have AML. But for sure, you know, in patients with transforming disease or those rare patients you get, it's a, a fine agent to use in combination with uh, isonucleosides. And, and, you know, the use of venetoclax is, in, in these patients is something else that will be explored, just like that's moved from AML toward MDS and, and other high blast case um, MDS. In lower risk disease, I think that probably has less of a role. Absolutely, yeah. So I was alluding more to like the severe neutropenia patients. Uh, we presented some data Ash, looking at those patients that actually they have higher rate a little bit uh, of the IDH mutations, but your point is well taken. Typically associated with higher risk, like 5-10%. But when you look at the severe neutropenia patients, isolated neutropenia, those IDH1, IDH2 can be enriched, so it could be a potential target. Uh, as you well know, the French group presented data on... Uh, both IDH1 and IDH2 in MDS, three separate cohorts up front, higher risk, HMA failure, higher risk. But there was a cohort after ESA failure in the lower risk, and again, showing activity. So, But I think to your point, all of this is pointing exactly to what you said. It's, it's so naive to think of treating all lower risk with the same. I think you know, with things like ESA, HMA, they may have universal mechanism of action. But we really have to go down and, and you know, know the subsets of the disease. I think the ineffective hematopoiesis mechanism is different among those groups, and we should target that. I think it's very clear from even our discussion today, the evol evolution of our understanding of the disease, the importance of molecular data, uh, spending time on risk stratification. And now even the landscape for lower risk in 222 have several options that are tailored based on you know, the disease. So deletion 5Q get lenalidomide, MDS with rincidroblast, respatercept, hypomethylating agents for patients with concomitant cytopenias or higher risk feature, immunosuppressive therapy for younger patients. There may be a role for some, you know, TPO stimulants and isolated thrombocytopenia, et cetera. And I think that's where we are going to evolve exactly to your point that we are going to divide patients more into homogeneous groups based on the underlying biology of the ineffective hematopoiesis and target that. This always is a pleasure talking to you. And it's always a learning experience for me, make me think more about what we do. Any final comments, Michael or Jamil? This has been very enjoyable, Rami. I appreciate the opportunity. I agree. I always learn from both of you. And the main take-home points for low-risk MDS for our audience, to me, would be that number one, there's myriad choices. We have a lot more available for low-risk MDS, and it's uh, number two, and part of that, it's, it's a lot more complicated because the disease is better, very heterogeneous. And, and then I would say, um, you know, allogenic stem cell transplant. People say, oh, low-risk disease, you don't need stem cell transplant. Well, I'd, I'd be careful with that because a lot of patients with low-risk disease at diagnosis 
become refractory to all this low risk treatment and they're still only 60 years old and you know they will ultimately succumb to iron overload and uh, from transfusions they have low quality of life and stem cell transplants should be con- always considered in those situations absolutely no i totally agree and I'm, thank you for bringing that up because it was on my mind to bring that there is role for the allogeneic stem cell transplant after failure of current therapies younger patients higher risk disease features as we incorporate more of those molecular-based models. Uh, I think your point is very well taken. Uh, Jamil, any final thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Rami. This was a, a fantastic discussion. And I will say that after years of taking care of MDS patients, low-risk MDS is emerging to be the most difficult group of patients to take care of, for me anyway, because for high risk, we have more delineated, this is what you do, but for low risk, it's becoming like really more like hair splitting what to do with this group of patients, but hopefully it'll be a little bit easier with more options to come. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank our audience also for uh, hanging around with us, uh, listening to all uh, those developments in lower risk MDS. Thank you for participating in this activity and see you next time. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education and supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com Prova. Thank you for listening.